and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. There is one question that haunts me still. Why didn't I close my eyes? I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are talking about the beasties that petrify. Oh my. (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of excited to do this one. Petrification is, it's an old status. It can be really strong. It borderlines on imbalanced at times, but if used correctly, it can swing a battle and make monsters much, much more challenging. It's something that you saw a lot more frequently in some of the older video games and definitely in tougher editions like second edition that seems to have largely fallen out of favor anymore. Uh, I don't know about that. I wasn't able to find a whole lot of monsters outside of the ones we're talking about today that even back then did petrification. I don't know. It seemed to be more of a risk maybe then. I heard more of players or instances where petrification would happen, I think, or at least maybe they just stand out more. But it seems like it's something that's largely fallen out of favor, or maybe the monsters themselves have fallen a bit out of favor. Well, I think part of the reason for that is because petrification up through third edition, it was always a save or petrify. Right. There was no middle ground. No. And so petrification basically meant that your character was dead unless you had access to the very specific magic that was required to reverse that petrification. Right. And there was generally spells, I think. Yeah, there was a stone to flesh. Yeah. That was one. And that was a cleric spell generally, I believe. I think druids may have also had it in third edition. Okay. But yeah, there was stone to flesh. And then I think was heal because heal has always been a very high level spell that Restores a whole bunch of hit points and cures you of all that ails you. Just about everything, yeah. Yeah, everything but death. Right. But those are fairly high-level spells. I think Stone to Flesh is either a 5th or 6th level spell. Heal is either a 6th or 7th level spell. Well, I mean, this wasn't an ability you'd put on a monster for a first-level party or, you know, a first-level adventurers or anything like that by any stretch. But going through, even as a plot point, I think this could be really neat to use, especially if you knew a party member or a player was going to maybe have to miss a few sessions in a row. Maybe, you know, life happens, someone's going on vacation, medical appointments, something like that, where like, hey, I'm going to miss the next three or four weeks of sessions or whatever. Maybe have a monster, maybe have them petrified because in this way they're not dead, but they are in a form of stasis. And I mean, unless something fairly beefy is going to come smash a statue, they're fairly impervious at that point until you can cure this spell or disease or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Anyway, we should probably tell the people what monsters we're going to be talking about today. (laughs) Yeah, it might might be a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. So the big four that we're going to be discussing today are the Basilisk, the Cockatrice, the Gorgon, and the Medusa. There is one other monster that has had a petrification effect for the longest time that we are not going to talk about in detail today, and that is the Beholder. It does get an honorable mention, though. It does get an honorable mention. The reason we're not talking about it yet is because we are working on an episode on the Far Realms, because we never got to the Far Realms whenever we were doing our planar journeys, which is appropriate because the Far Realms is technically... We we missed that one on our Modron march. Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) the Modrons wouldn't go there because technically it's outside of our reality, and so they have no business going there. Fair enough. It's outside of their parameters. Yes. 
but there are several monsters that come from the far realms beholders being one of them and so we're gonna save beholders for that conversation for now we'll pet its happy little eye stalk and we will move along absolutely all right let's go ahead and get started let's start off with the basilisk okay basilisks and again i'm gonna have a harder time with this just keeping them straightened between the basilisk and then our next one the cockatrice because they are fairly interchangeable and we will discuss this as we go on the basilisk was a serpent creature more serpent than anything else it's gotten a good bit of fame from the second of the harry potter films where you had the basilisk in the chamber of secrets that everyone seems to memorize and they did a fairly decent job with this yeah that basilisk was very much more in line with the mythological Yes, very much so. Now, again, the heraldric basilisk or a medieval basilisk was a bit different, but the mythological basilisk, the earliest mention I could find was from Pliny the Elder in about 79 CE. And basically, it was a venomous serpent that had a petrifying gaze. I have seen different things about where this comes from, but many people believe that this was based either off of the Egyptian cobra or possibly something more along the lines of the Indian spitting cobra, where the cobra will actually aim its venom towards the eyes of its victim. And so therefore, you know, getting blinded by this thing because it spit a bunch of venom in your eyes, I could see how they could translate this into a petrifying gaze of some sort with eye contact right so i'm not sure how much contact the roman empire would have had with india i know that they knew they were there because alexander the great went that far yes but i don't know so anything hellenistic uh the romans that could and that could be a thing you know where it's a creature that was mentioned from the early greek texts that by distance of both geography and time was morphed into this larger-than-life mythological creature. Right. I believe the Roman Empire at its furthest eastward expansion covered into what would now be modern-day Iraq. I don't think they actually crossed. I believe it's the Tigris is the eastern river or the Euphrates. The Tigris Tigris is is the the one on the east, yes. Okay, yeah. So they did not cross the Tigris. I think that's as far as they expanded eastward. But they did have trade routes, you know, obviously the Silk Road and the Orient and China. So they would have had trade routes into India most definitely because there was a ruby trade with Corundum. And that was largely mined in modern day India, Sri Lanka, as is still now today. Okay. But yeah, so I mean, the Basque was this incredibly potent venomous creature. It did have a petrifying gaze. It was also, according to Pliny, it left a trail of venom behind it, kind of almost like a snail or slug trail because it was so venomous that it exuded venom from its very being, which is kind of terrifying when you think of it. (laughs) Right. But yeah, that's about as much as we get from ancient mythology, ancient lore. This was, in fact, very Hellenistic from the time. And again, talking about coming through Greek culture, Greek writings primarily. When you start getting into mythological depictions, you start getting more of that combination with the cockatrice. I do know in a lot of cases, it was believed to have a frill. The way to create or birth a basilisk was very similar to the way you would birth or create a cockatrice. There's actually a wonderful text called The Diverse Arts by Theophilius, 12th century, I believe. He has all kinds of stuff on stone carving and painting and woodworking. And nestled in all of this, he has information on how to create your very own basilisk or cockatrice at home. And the basilisk was a chicken's egg that was 
incubated or nested either by a toad or by a serpent. And in some regards, it had to be by a toad or a serpent in the basement of a Spanish tower specifically. I'm not sure if that was a slight towards the Spanish or the people of the Iberian Peninsula or why it specifically had to be a Spanish tower, but that's what it was in the text. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to tell you that one either. (laughs) So again, it is kind of a cold creature. But again, something like this on the table, you do have this petrifying gaze. Mechanically, that's great. Even just an incredibly strong venom with a super low or a super high rather DC would be how I would probably present this. And I've not actually seen the fifth edition monster stats. So I'm not sure how they have built this up correctly or actually for the tabletop. Oh, we will be getting to that. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) I think this is my invitation to join in. Yes. This is is me blowing James's graceful segue. (laughs) (laughs) So the D&D Basilisk is the Basilisk that you also predominantly see in video games. It is a giant lizard that has six or eight legs. Most in D&D have eight legs. Most of the ones that I've seen in other media have six. Wait, wait, real quick. You said this is a giant lizard. Is it actually listed as as huge in the stat block? Well, I mean, giant in the in the sense that it is larger than like an iguana or a newt or, you know, one of those little bitty several inch long things. Okay. That's actually really fun to know because in Pliny's description, and again, because he was the most reliable of sources. He was basically our version of Volo. <laughs> as reliable as Volo is, Pliny's about that reliable. Uh, however, I, I want to find the person who was doing the Elminster-esque notations <laughs> on Pliny's work. Yes. But Pliny does also note, and I forgot to mention this, but it is kind of fun, that the uh, Basilisk was a terrifying 12 inches long. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, the Basilisk, as detailed in 3rd edition, I believe, the body of the Basilisk was roughly 6 feet long, and they had a tail between 5 and 7 feet long attached to that. So roughly 10 to 12 feet. Definitely an upgrade. Definitely an upgrade. (laughs) Yeah. As I said, they usually have 8 legs in D&D. In most other media, they have 6 legs. I primarily know them from World of Warcraft, where the model has six legs. Um, I think that's just because they couldn't make eight legs look right on the model without making it oversized. I could see that. I think it was purely an artistic decision, but I don't don't work for Blizzard, so I couldn't say that definitively. That's just my guess. Okay. You don't work for Blizzard, really? You're just not talking? (laughs) Right? So... The gaze of the Basilisk has always been the most substantial and most dangerous attack that a Basilisk has. As I mentioned earlier, up until the transition from 3rd to 4th edition, the gaze of a Basilisk was save or petrify. If you failed that saving throw, you were petrified. No ifs, ands, or buts. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Starting in 4th edition, it became a multi-step process. So in 4th edition... The first time you failed your saving throw, you were slowed, which I think halved your movement speed and gave you a penalty on attack rolls. And then next you were immobilized, which reduced your speed to zero. And then you were petrified. So you had to fail three saves in order to become fully petrified. 
I kind of like that. It's almost like death saves, and it does make it less swingy for the battlefield. Well, it, I, it allows you to ramp up the tension of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because this thing's building up, and so it definitely, yeah, no, I, I love that. If I made this now, I would almost make this like a lesser basilisk or maybe like a juvenile basilisk with this ramp up, and then maybe like an ancient basilisk or an elder that has the save or petrify. In 5e, it still has a multi-step, but now it's only two steps. Okay. The first turn, you become restrained, and then the second turn, you become petrified. If you fail, your saving throw again. Okay. So they have also been noted as being able to eat the creatures that they petrify. Ooh. In 5th edition, they say that the creatures that they petrify, the stone that they are comprised of, is very porous, very soft, And so it's easy for them to use their powerful jaws to bite off a chunk. Oh, nice. I would imagine this maybe like a pumice stone. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking kind of along those lines. If you've never actually handled pumice stone, it is really weird. It floats on water. I grew up in Central California and there was a lake. And on occasion, you'd see giant pieces of pumice stone sitting there floating across. But yeah, even as a child, I could grab a hunk that would be, you know, the size of a softball. And if I put enough pressure on it, I could crush it in my hands and it would turn into that like powdery stuff you'd use in the shop to clean your hands and stuff like that. Right. And my first introduction to pumice was, you know, because they use pumice to tumble blue jeans to distress them. And every so often you'll buy a brand new pair of blue jeans and there'll be a rock stuck in the pocket. (laughs) So that was my first exposure to pumice was, you know, getting a brand new pair of blue jeans for school and reaching into the pocket and finding this lint packed rock <laughs> sitting in the sitting in the bottom of the pocket. Yeah, I got a free rock. <laughs> yep. In fifth edition lore, they also are expressly possessive of an oil in their gullet, which will transform the stone back to flesh. Ooh. Which if you are able to carefully harvest it, that oil can be used to reverse the petrification on a creature that it has petrified. That is something that you don't see a lot in 5th edition anymore. We've talked about this a little bit is the use of crafting skills and things like that. But even the harvesting items of monsters. I mean, second edition had these wonderful tables that was like, it depended on how you killed the monster and what kind of damage you used to kill the monster. And then you'd roll a percentile chance to see if you could harvest the item. That seems to be largely abridged in fifth edition, which I get, but I'm a little sad about. And now it's just like, Hey, I want to tear turkey leg off this buzzard nearly. And the DM's like, yeah, okay, sure. Go for it. But yeah, that harvesting things from monster, kind of like Capcom's Monster Hunter, is something I would see to like to come back in more detail. Yeah. Another notable bit of basilisk lore is that they're noted as being trainable. And so basilisk eggs are highly prized because they can be trained to avert their gaze from their master, from the person who is in control of them. Avert thy sinful gaze. (laughs) And even as far back as second edition, they are stated as, quote, typically used to guard treasure. Okay. And that would be a fairly awesome guardian. Definitely a fun thing to put in the end of a treasure room or something like that for your party. In fourth edition, the lore was expanded a little bit. It states that they are strangely evolved drakes, which gives them a slight draconic tie-in. Fair enough. I could see that. And it also states that they don't seek out sapient prey, but that they will, quote, literally kill you as soon as it looks at you. (laughs) Well played. So it's not that it's trying to kill you. It's just that 
you are there and its instinct is to attempt to petrify anything that it can perceive as a threat or as food. Makes sense. I mean, it makes it fairly bestial. I do enjoy that. Now, within the rule set, is there any way to avoid the particular gaze other than positioning of your characters? It depends on edition. Okay. In second edition, third edition, and fourth edition, in most cases, all that it requires is for the basilisk to be able to see you. Okay. In fifth edition, you can avert your gaze to avoid that. The same way that you can avert your gaze from an Umber Hulk to avoid their save versus whatever that is, the maddening charm effect or whatever it is. So starting off in second edition and working our way up and through, second edition had three different variants. Starting with the lesser, the lesser is your basic basilisk. It had a petrifying gaze, save versus petrify, and a 1d10 bite attack. If it saw itself in a reflective surface, it would immediately assume that that was another basilisk and attempt to use its gaze to petrify it and would petrify itself no save. Okay, that kind of reminds me of the original Clash of the Titans where they had Perseus using the reflective shield for Medusa. And the other detail, and this detail spreads across all of these monsters. The gaze of a basilisk would reach into the astral and ethereal planes. If a creature is targeted by the gaze and they're on the astral plane and they fail their saving throw, it becomes save or die. Wow. If they are on the ethereal plane, they are turned into ethereal stone, which means that they are now a statue on the ethereal plane and only a creature that can see into the ethereal plane can even see that they're there. And only a creature that is able to affect things on the ethereal plane can touch them. You're getting lost forever. (laughs) Potentially, yes. That's slightly terrifying. Yeah, so that is another thing that you could bring back because we did mention a while back when we were talking about ghosts, you know, how they can shift back and forth to the ethereal plane at will. Right. And how having a ghost in a castle, if you were trying to be all sneaky and get through using etherealness, Right. Just run into a ghost on the ethereal plane and have it just wreck your day. That would actually be a great MacGuffin, too, is, you know, this wizard was cast a stone in the ethereal plane. And now you have to find and ally yourself with a ghost or a clan or sect of ghosts so they can help you find this person and bring them back. Or have an instance where there was this legendary thief that all of a sudden just disappeared one day. Yeah. And this could be like a B or a C story in your campaign. But eventually you make, you know, you pull up additional lore on this thief and you're able to figure out how they were able to pull off the heist that they were doing. And it was because they were able to turn ethereal and you eventually uncover the location of their last designated hit and whenever you go to investigate it you find this giant ancient basilisk guarding the treasure and maybe you're able to put two and two together and somebody is able to look into or reach the ethereal plane and they find standing in that room is the petrified thief i like that yeah no and i'm sure they would be very very thankful to be rejuvenated and award the party appropriately Yeah, it could be one of those things where the thief has an item that they need 
Yes. The thief has the MacGuffin, and so they have to locate the thief and restore them so that they can get the MacGuffin from the thief. Yeah, that would be a, a great end to that hook. That'd be awesome. So the two major variants of the Basilisk in second edition, you have the Greater Basilisk, which has a much more powerful 2d8 bite as opposed to a 1d10 bite, and two claws. Each of them deal 1d6 damage, and they're poisoned. So you have to make a save versus poison, or you end up taking some damage after a little bit of time. They also have a poisonous breath. If you pass within five feet of the face of the Basilisk, it doesn't matter if you start your turn there. It doesn't matter if you end your turn there. If you just walk through that space, you have to make a save versus poison. And if you fail, you die. Wow. Second edition was brutal. <laughs> yeah. The gaze of the greater basilisk is specifically stated to extend to 50 feet. The gaze of the lesser basilisk is not specified, but they only have a 10% chance of targeting themselves with their gaze if the reflective surface that they are reflecting in is greater than 10 feet away from them because, quote, they're nearsighted. It pays to be blind sometimes. They, they have weird shaped eyes, and so they're nearsighted. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll take it. And then the other ones are Dracolisks, which are the cross between a basilisk and a black dragon. Oh, that just sounds not fun. Oh, no, it isn't. So they have a 3d4 bite. They retain their two 1d6 claw attacks. They're the only Basilisk in second edition to have specified six legs and not eight. But they also have wings. It specifies that they can only fly for one or two rounds at a time because they're kind of small and they don't have a lot of oomph to them. So they can't just, you know, get up and fly around everywhere, but they can glide. They can fly for short distances. Okay. They're also far more intelligent than your standard basilisk having an intelligence range of five to ten. So a ten intelligence, that's human intelligence. Right. Their gaze is shortened. It only reaches out to 20 feet, but they also only have a 10% chance to target themselves with their gaze because they have nictating membranes. So they have the double eyelids. Oh, nice. What was the DC on that gaze? Is that recorded down? Second edition didn't have DCs set by monster. Okay. It's a save versus paralysis. Okay. And so it would be whatever your paralysis save it was. was. Right. Okay. It was also the only one whose gaze you could avoid by averting your eyes in second edition. Both of the others, if they could see you, they could target you with a gaze. Okay. And finally, three times a day, they can spit a 30 foot line of acid that deals 46 damage half on a save. I like it. And that kind of ties back in more to that whole spitting cobra type thing. And, you know, just a good old fashioned black drake because that's yep. how they do. That's how they do. All right. Moving along. Third edition. Third edition basilisks are pretty boring. And that's going to be, unfortunately, a running theme today. That in third edition, they just sort of phoned in all of these. Aww. They still have their save or petrify gaze. They still have a bite attack, but they only get a bite attack. Oh, wow. They did at least get the blind fight feat so that they could attack without penalty, even if they couldn't see you. As long as they were aware you were there, they could still attack you. That makes perfect sense. Especially since historically from previous editions, if their gaze can reach into the ethereal and astral planes, 
then that suggests that they are able to see into those planes. And so they are aware of that. Right. Third edition also introduced the Abyssal Greater Basilisk. So these are just basilisks from the Abyss. They were used as by servants of demon lords as guards and escorts. Uh, they could be summoned by a demon lord's servants on the material plane to guard their locations, you know, ritual sites or what have you. I could see that. I could see these being really strong, like prison guards as well. They were basically just bigger, meaner versions of the standard basilisk. Okay. The DC for their gaze was increased from 13 to 21. Ooh. The bite attack was increased from D8 plus 3 to 2D8 plus 10. Ouch. They still only got one attack. They didn't get multi-attack. Okay. Well, that balances out because now you're not hitting three times with poison. But they also gained the ability Smite Good. So any attacks that they made against a good aligned creature automatically dealt an additional 18 points of damage. Wow. Nice. Yeah. So we're looking at 19 plus 18, average of 37 damage a hit against a good aligned creature. I want one of these as a pet. So, moving into 4th edition, I was actually able to find a really good website when I was doing my research called Octopus Carnival, where they did a series of reviews, basically, of all of the monsters in the 4th edition Monster Manual Monster Vault. And so I was able to find all of the information I needed of 4th edition monsters for this episode. And 4E actually did right by the Basilisk. Nice. There were a bunch of variants that were added. The standard is the Stone Eye Basilisk. The Gaze became Close Blast 3. So the way that that works in 4th edition terms is it's a 3x3 square, and one of those squares has to be adjacent to the space that the creature using the ability is in. So it is a 15-foot square adjacent to the Basilisk. Okay, that sounds almost like they were trying to go for a whole like little Warhammer template thing, but... Yeah, well, it was basically trying to video game the tabletop. Yeah, I've heard that a lot about 4th edition. That's one of the things a lot of people had issues with. Right. I think that if 4th edition had come out now with the prevalence of digital tabletops, I think it would have worked a whole lot better. Yeah, I could see that running a lot better. Uh, I think it was just ahead of its time and the publicity behind it was terrible i'm I'm not saying wizard has dropped the ball on pr multiple times but it's happened (laughs) yeah a couple of the other variants that you had one was the venomai basilisk which dealt poison damage with its gaze and if you failed your save it also did an ongoing poison damage and if you had that ongoing poison damage you dealt half of that damage to any creature adjacent to you at the start of your turn. You basically got a five-foot poison aura. Nice. And it also inflicted a penalty on attack rolls, much like the poisoned condition does in 5th edition. There was also the Wilt Eye Basilisk, which was a weaker version that if you failed your saving throw against the gaze attack, rather than being petrified, you were knocked unconscious. Oh, okay. You just dropped unconscious and it went off on its merry little way. I like it. Now, if you're elven or draconic and you had immunity to sleep, would that save you from that? No, because it's not sleep. Oh. It's unconsciousness. Nice. I love little loopholes like that. Yeah. It is specifically (laughs) detailed that it will affect even fey creatures because it isn't sleep. 
Oh, nice. And then finally, they had the return of the Abyssal Basilisk. Now, the Abyssal Basilisk has a gaze that, quote, drives the target mad with horror. So it deals psychic damage, and then it effectively dominates them. It makes them go and make a basic attack against the closest ally. Okay, good Eldritch Horror Basilisk. Yeah, and that's tying into the chaotic evil alignment of the Abyss. You know, it's that sowing chaos amongst the ranks. I love it. Have I mentioned I want one of these as a pet? Because I totally want one of these as a pet. Right, yeah. (laughs) Moving along to 5th edition, 5e is back to being boring. The 5e Basilisk is just a CR3 monster. It has its 2d6 plus 3 bite. They did put the poison damage back on it. So it also deals 2d6 poison damage on top of that. But in 5th edition, with everything having poison resistance or poison immunity, that's kind of a moot point. The petrifying gaze can finally be avoided by averting your eyes. The gaze gives you the restrained condition on the first turn and petrifies on the second turn. And if you succeed on your saving throw in between, the effect ends. Okay. So DM Dave who's another content creator we've mentioned a couple of times. He cranks out some good stuff. He does crank out some good stuff. He has come out with a few interesting variants. One is the Basiliskette, which is a miniature version. This is more in line with what you mentioned earlier of Pliny the Elder's description, because they are serpentine. They don't have any legs. Okay. They're much smaller than the Basilisk, but they still have this same gaze attack. They still have the same poison damage added onto the bite. The next one is the Mega Basil, which is basically just crank up the dial on the Basilisk, just make it bigger and hit harder and have a higher DC for its gaze and just make it a bigger monster in general. Then there's the Coral Basilisk, which is basically an amphibious Leoplerodon with a petrifying gaze. Okay. I believe there was a Coral Basilisk in WoW as well. I want to say, but they were like a beach dwelling creature. So I could, yeah, I could probably. see that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different variant basilisks in World of Warcraft. That this is true. <laughs> there probably <laughs> is one somewhere. And then the last one he did was the zombie basilisk. So it's basically you take the basilisk, you throw undead fortitude on it, and you give it poison immunity. That's almost too much. And that's about it. <laughs> Though I guess a good turn or destroy undead would solve that fairly quickly. Okay, I'll take that. Not as fun as the Abyssal Basilisk, which is still, I just want a tiny one in a little basket I could pet. That would be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that brings us pretty much to the end of the Basilisk as a D&D monster. You were saying that the Basilisk and the Cockatrice in mythology are very similar. They are very similar. And like I said, the earliest mention of the Basilisk I could find was about 79 CE by Pliny the Elder. Take a wild stab at how far back the cockatrice goes. I'm going to guess a whole lot further than that. Yeah, that is a good guess. The earliest I was able to find is actually in the book of Isaiah, biblically. The King James Version and the versions before that talk about the suckling child will play with the asp and the children will put their hands in cockatrice dens. There's another mention about those who weave the webs of death and eat cockatrice eggs. And if you break these eggs open, a venomous serpent will come out. So again, much older, yet In modern translations, the cockatrice is now listed as a venomous serpent, where again, you do start getting that similarity and blending of the cockatrice and the basilisk. 
various versions is a snake with a chicken's head or sometimes a chicken with like a snake or like a velociraptor head. Either way, still very venomous. Uh, it does have this petrifying gaze. In Theophilus, he says if you want to make a basilisk, you had a chicken egg that was incubated by a toad or a serpent. For a cockatrice, you have a serpent's egg that is nested by chickens. And the only way to prevent this from hatching is you had to throw it over your house and let it break on the other side of your house without it touching your house. I have no idea where that came from, but that's lore as listed. The one sure way in mythology to kill a cockatrice was if it heard the crow of a rooster. So I don't know if there was a similarity thing. I'm sure there's a reason for that, but I don't know exactly what that is. But the crow of a rooster was the death knell of a cockatrice. Uh, Looking in modern depictions of the cockatrice, one of the only real times I've seen it in a game, it was in the first Witcher, and it might be in Witcher 3. I never actually played through Witcher 3, but in the first Witcher, there was a quest where you had to get a cockatrice's comb. And so you go through, and again, it did have this poison ability, but not the petrifying gaze. Otherwise, the cockatrice and basilisks are almost interchangeable. Yeah, that may be the case for mythology, but in D&D, they are two very different creatures. The cockatrice in D&D is an avian creature, so it takes much more after the chicken aspect. It's effectively a chimeric creature if you look at it, because it is a chicken's head and body. In some depictions, they are sort of naked, and some they have golden brown feathers over the body, but they have bat wings and a serpent's tail with a tuft of feathers at the end. And in D&D, it is the bite, not the gaze of the cockatrice that imparts petrification. So it is actually a portion of their attack. They generally only attack things that are small enough for them to eat whole because of petrification. Although in older editions, they did specify that they don't petrify the things that they're actually going to eat. Okay. I'm not sure how they decided one way or another. I mean, in later editions, I think in fourth or fifth edition, they specified that it is the venom within the cockatrice's mouth that imparts petrification. So if you're careful, you could actually harvest the venom from the mouth of a cockatrice and use it as a poison that you could put on a weapon. So Ooh. like put it on a dagger or put it on an arrow or put it on like a blowgun dart. I love that. I would make that DC check so incredibly high, though. <laughs> if threatened, they are on the fight end of the fight or flight spectrum. They will straight up get up in your face and buffet you with their wings and scratch at you with their talons and peck you with their beaks. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, you know, have the term chicken for cowardice and stuff like that, but it can be pretty uppity. Oh, yeah. Not quite on the level of a goose, but they will definitely come after you if they're in the mood. Oh, yeah. And there are definitely some roosters that are just, they're just mean. Yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up with chickens. I know. <laughs> they will wreck your day. Yeah. They taste real good, too. Oh, they do. Yeah, that, that is a great thing. You're like, oh, you want to push this, do you? And then you have a nice chicken dinner and you prove the point and you have it in front of the other chickens, too, because this is how exactly you prove the point. So in older editions, cloth and leather clothing and armor were not enough to prevent the bite of a cockatrice from petrifying you. The only thing that would turn potentially the bite would be metal armor. Okay. And and you would have a 10% chance per 
point of AC, I think, on the armor. I think that's how that worked. I'm not entirely sure how exactly how armor works in second edition and how it affects everything. But it said that it was 10% chance per point that you could avoid direct contact with flesh if you're wearing metal armor. Okay. And for the longest time, they were also specifically immune to the petrifying effect of other cockatrices, but only cockatrices. So like they would still be able to be petrified by a flesh to stone spell or by the gaze of a basilisk. Okay. And that makes sense because they've got to work amongst themselves. And it's like the basilisks would be able to close their eyes because, I mean, obviously you have a bunch of baby basilisks running around and yeah. And that does also make sense because if if we're treating it as a venom, that is something that they could have an immunity to. It is a different mechanical effect than the magical gaze of a basilisk. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. All right. So going into the different variants through the editions. In second edition, like I said, the petrification effect extends into the ethereal plane. It did not specify that it goes also into the astral plane, but I would assume so because that's the way that all the other ones worked. Okay. They are structured as a female dominant species because males are much more common than females. And so there would be a a female cockatrice that would have a harem of males surrounding her and they would communally build a nest and they would find all these little shinies like gems and gold coins and stuff, kind of like magpies to fancy up the nest. I am seeing this wonderful blend between a spider and a magpie at this point because you have the female dominated spiders where they're much larger because of the sexual dimorphism and whatnot. Yeah. And then, yeah, so you have all these like little male roosters bringing all these shiny things in and just this giant female that's, and I mean, they're all poisonous too. Yeah, I know. I love this. Yeah. The female would lay one to two eggs a month. The eggs would have a 25% chance of hatching. And the hatchlings would reach maturity in about six months, at which point they would be driven away from the nest. And so most of the times, if you just encountered a cockatrice, it would be one of these young males that has been driven out from the nest that is looking for a harem that it can assimilate into. So in second edition, there is one variant. And as far as I can tell, it is the only variant to the cockatrice that I could find in all of D&D. And it's called the pyrolisk. Ooh. The only visual difference between a cockatrice and a pyrolisk is that the pyrolisk has a reddish tint to its wings and a single red feather in its tail. Nice. And to quote the monster manual, whereas the cockatrice is motivated by instinct alone, the pyrolisk revels in spreading mayhem. Adding this to my pet list as well. (laughs) It has a fiery gaze, so it no longer has a bite-centric effect. It is now a gaze effect. If you succeed on your saving throw, you take 1d12 plus 1 fire damage and are thereafter permanently immune to the gaze attack of that pyrolisk. Okay. If you fail, you die. You As are it should be. instantly immolated. I, I am pretty sure I know where my African gray parrot descended from. If you're not familiar <laughs> with an African gray parrot, they're not a large, they're a medium-sized gray bird, but a very bright red tail. And they're very intelligent and can be extremely mischievous. So they I should have also- named her Chloe because she's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. They can also cause any fire source within 30 feet to explode like fireworks. Ooh. As with the pyrotechnic spell, 
once per round. Oh, nice. I need a whole like covey of these things. And as a final note, they are naturally immune to fire. Of course. And they are listed as being the mortal enemy of the Phoenix. Ooh, I like them even more. Yeah. Yes. Okay, yeah. I These are high on my list of new favorites. Definitely way up there. All right. Moving along. Third edition, Cockatrice didn't really change a whole lot. Still has the petrifying bite. Still has a 60-foot fly speed. It still has immunity to the petrifying bite of other cockatrices and only other cockatrices. And that's about it. It's a very boring... Third edition dropped the ball. Uh, just about all of these petrifying creatures, yes. They just sort of phoned it in. They're like, this yeah. is probably why we stopped seeing a lot of them. And again, because they were phoned in. Third edition was the foundation for a lot of the modern players. So mm-hmm. if it wasn't something that was popular in third edition, you're not likely to see it in fifth. So moving along to fourth edition, again, they stay mainly the same. They haven't really changed a whole lot through any of the editions. The lore is amended at this point to indicate that it is the venom that they produce in their mouths that causes the petrification. Fourth edition cockatrices are completely immune to petrification. So they now suggest things like medusas keep them as pets. They are also listed as being handled primarily by reptilian races like lizard folk and Yanti. I could see that. And they also now have a recharging reaction ability. Recharges on four, five, six, where if a creature moves adjacent to the cockatrice, it can react, buffet them with its wings, peck them, and then fly 15 feet away. That is a great reaction. Yeah. Moving on to fifth edition, more of the same. They still have the petrifying bite. They still have the fly speed. They're no longer immune to petrification. They are, I think, a CR one half monster now. That is unfortunate. They deserve so much more than that. And personally, I would still give them immunity to petrification because, you know, at that level, the players aren't going to have access to spells and abilities that can petrify. Yeah. Unless they've got dropped into a whole coop of these things at, you know, level five or six. And there's just so many of these things. They're like, here, here's 20 cockatrices, cockatry. I don't know how cockatrices. Yeah. Here's 20 of them. You deal with it. <laughs> I mean, at that point, you know, that would have to be like a fourth or fifth level party because just the volume right. of cockatrices would be enough <laughs> to overwhelm. You'd have to have some spells that did AOE stuff yeah. in order to even stand a chance against right. that. All right. Well, that takes care of the two more bestial of our creatures. Next in our list of petrifying menagerie is the Gorgon. The Gorgon is not the Gorgon from mythology. I think we're going to get into that a little bit. Probably, yeah. The Gorgon in a D&D context is a bull. Oh, interesting. With a metallic iron scales, effectively. I think that it is probably patterned after the brazen bull, the Sicilian bull. Yeah, I was going to say there's a specific name for that. I forget what it is, but it was a execution slash torture device. Yeah, where basically you would throw someone inside of it, you would build a fire underneath, and then it was shaped in such a way that as the person cried out in agony as they were being cooked alive, the cries would echo through and it would sound like the bull was braying. It sounded like a moo. (laughs) The Romans were inventive in their horrors. Yeah, so the Gorgon mythology, this is going to be very much Greek and Hellenistic. The Gorgons specifically were 
three sisters. They weren't even an entire race. And they were Medusa and then her two sisters, which I am blanking on their names currently. I actually wrote this down. Oh, excellent. It's Steno and Uriale. There we go. But yes, as you picture Medusa, the Gorgons were similar. Medusa was the only mortal of the three. I'm not sure exactly why she was mortal. I don't know if that was part of her curse from Athena or not, because her and Poseidon got busy in Athena's temple and Athena took umbrage with that. And there's the question of whether or not Medusa was consenting in said event with Poseidon. That is open to interpretation and lore. I do kind of like the modern interpretation that rather than a curse, Medusa's gaze was something different, but we will talk about that more as we discuss Medusa particularly. But much like Pegasus is a specific winged stallion. Medusa is a specific Gorgon. Gorgon, yes. And that's about where I, I leave off with lore because... Medusa definitely was in the limelight for the rest of them. Right. And I would almost hazard to say that Medusa was the mortal one because Ovid needed to be able to kill her with the story of Perseus so that he could decapitate her and use the head. It is the exact opposite of plot armor. (laughs) Yeah. Her immortality fell through a hole in the plot. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Just right there. Just right on the ground. (laughs) It's right there. So... Gorgons in D&D, as I said, are these large bull-like creatures. They have a metallic iron hide, and they exhale a petrifying gas. Okay. Kind of like the uh, Catiblupus? Yes. And I honestly believe that the Gorgon is based off of that aspect of the Catiblupus from mythology. I could see that. I think it's an amalgam of the breath of the Catablepus and the brazen bull sort of mushed together to create this nightmare fuel. No, that's perfectly acceptable because, you know, if you need to make nightmare fuel, go for old nightmares. (laughs) Yeah, and they also have elements of the Minotaur tacked into them as well because they frequently are found within labyrinths. Okay. They are capable of walking on just their hind legs, but they prefer to walk on all fours. They are inherently aggressive, and unlike the creature, the cow that they resemble, they are carnivorous. Ooh, nice. Their preferred foods are things like deer and elk, but they are opportunistic. If it's meat, they will try and eat it. I can totally understand that. I could follow with that, yeah. It is unclear within lore whether they are able to eat the statues that they make with their petrifying breath. It is perfectly possible because they have these giant iron teeth that are able to crunch stuff. Yeah. But it is never specified one way or another if that is a possibility. I just want to see the Gorgon with a bunch of statues so we could literally have like the whole bull in a china shop thing. Absolutely. Because the Gorgon, as I mentioned before, if you're petrified, you're kind of safe because you're a fairly sturdy stone statue and it's not the easiest thing to break. However, a metallic charging bolt definitely fits the bill. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And the whole shtick is that they charge in and trample their way into the midst of a group and then they use their petrifying breath to petrify a whole bunch of stuff. I'm kind of picturing, if you've ever seen in Plant Ploma, the uh, running of the bulls. I've seen videos, yeah. Yeah, so where they go. And a lot of those bulls do like going for the clusters of people and just start swinging their head and watching stuff fly. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. They also had an especially keen sense of smell. So they were able to track any creature 
whose scent they had picked up with 75% success. Ooh, nice. So you weren't getting away from it. Once it caught wind of you, it was going to find you and it was going to eat you. So I am seeing an upper level like story hook where you have the running of the Gorgons and you have like two or three Gorgons and they are just chasing your party and your party has to do whatever they have to do to get out of the way. No, I've got a better. Okay. You have to get something from the middle of this labyrinth. Oh, yeah. And you're being hunted through the labyrinth by the Gorgons. Nice. Yes. I love it. Yeah. Now, I would say depending on how thick or heavy the walls are, if they are close enough, they could just bust through like the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Perfect. Also, in second edition, they specified several uses for different body parts of the Gorgon. Again, second edition was very much keyed into this harvesting of monster parts, which I really miss. So for starters, their blood, once prepared, could be used as a seal against intrusion from the ethereal or astral planes. Interesting. So once it was prepared, you could draw a sigil or a barrier in a location using the blood, and it would prevent creatures from the ethereal or astral plane from passing over that barrier. Their scales could be powdered and then used as an ink for scrolls of protection from petrification. Makes perfect sense. Makes a lot more sense than the barrier from the ethereal plane. I'm kind of curious where they got that part from, but yeah. Because their breath can affect creatures on the ethereal and astral planes. Okay. No, okay. I could see that maybe. But the scroll of preventing petrification, that makes a lot more sense. And also because, you know, if they're primarily found in labyrinths, you could potentially go ethereal and just walk through all of the stone portions of the labyrinth to the center. Okay. Yeah, no, I could get that as a reasoning. That is fair. Okay. And then finally, their hide could be fashioned using some magic into a suit of scale mail, which would grant the wearer a bonus to all saves versus petrification. Also understandable and fair. I like it. All right, so going through the different editions, the second edition Gorgon, the breath weapon was a narrow cone. So it was 20 feet wide at the end, but 60 feet long. Okay. So it was that narrow, it wasn't a 45 degree cone. Yeah, it was probably a, what, a 30 or a 20? Or was it the 22 and a half, the half gotcha. yeah. of that? They could use it four times a day. Like everything else, it could affect the astral and ethereal planes. Anything in the area had to save or be instantly turned to stone. And if it failed to petrify everything, it would just stomp in and swing its horns around and trample its way through and just generally cause mayhem. Yeah. In third edition, the only real change was that the trample was split off into a separate special attack that had its own rules, that had its own damage designation. And the breath weapon was expanded to be a full 60 foot cone that could be used five times a day as opposed to four. Okay. In 4th edition, the Gorgon got some upgrades. It still has its gore attack with its horns. It still has its trample, but it has a recharging special trample called Earthshaking Charge. Ooh. So it deals more damage. If the creature whose space it goes through is medium or smaller, it is knocked back three squares, which is 15 feet, and knocked prone. Oh, nice. And finally, the breath weapon becomes a close blast three, just like the Basilisk's gaze. But it's now a recharge six and has no limit on daily uses. So as long as they can keep recharging it, they can keep using it. A recharge six, I mean, that gives you a one in six chance. That comes out to roughly 16%. You get a couple of rounds in between, so that's not terribly frequent. 
So I mean, it's basically the same recharge chance of most dragon, dragon breath weapons. Yeah. The breath weapon now also deals poison damage on yeah. top of petrifying. Because if you're not turned to stone, then you're just going to be sick. <laughs> yeah, and it still follows the same three-step process of slow, then immobilized, then petrified. Fourth edition also had a variant, Ooh. and I love this variant. It is okay. the Storm Gorgon. Nice. Sounds awesome. It is the favored herd animal of Storm Titans. It has an Aura 5, which is a 15-foot radius, where anyone inside of that aura automatically takes 20 points of lightning damage. Oh, I like it. I'm immediately thinking of the old Johnny Cash song, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Ghost Riders in... Oh, yeah. Anyway. (laughs) So, no save, only zap. And to play into your Ghost Riders in the Sky, it can also fly. Yes! Perfect. And it has lightning and thunder resistances. Oh, those are great. Its melee attacks now deal both physical and thunder damage. And anything that it hits with its physical attacks is knocked back, has a pushback two, so a knockback at 10 feet, and it is knocked prone. And finally, its breath weapon is improved from a close blast three to a close blast five, so it's a 25-foot square that no longer petrifies, but it deals a whole bunch of thunder and lightning damage. I like it. Now, I could take one of these, and I mean, we've talked about the running of the bulls. If you were the ones that, like, you don't know what to do with your party, so you just randomly throw them into a arena and see what kind of monsters you can throw at them for any given day, because you may have, you know, overslept and, and forgot to plan out this week's session or whatever, do a modern Western rodeo and just instead of whatever, throw one of these things in and see how long your party can duck, dodge, dip, and dive. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was an epic level monster. So this was a level 26 monster. Okay. So this was definitely for end game yes. sort of content. But one thing that I think would be really fun to try and do is in a sort of Storm King's Thunder-esque sort of game, run a heist. Basically, you're trying to rustle a Storm Gorgon calf. Oh. So you're playing cattle rustlers. And nice. so you're going to steal a calf. Is this where you get the glocktopus as your druid with the glocks? (laughs) (laughs) I suppose, yeah. But yeah, so you have to try and sneak in, get this storm gorgon calf, and get out without getting just annihilated. (laughs) I like that. And the more we talk about this, the more I kind of really do want to see more Western-themed D&D scenarios. I'm not a huge fan of Western films in general, but... I think there's a lot of potential there that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. So moving on to fifth edition, we're back to boring. The 5e Gorgon has actually retained its trampling charge. Nice. So it can charge through as long as it spends at least 20 feet of its movement moving in a straight line. It can move through other creatures' spaces. They have to make a deck save or they take trampling damage and yada, yada, yada. The breath weapon is still a recharge. It's now a recharge 5-6 as opposed to a recharge 6, and it has been reduced to a 30-foot cone. That's a fair trade. And it still uses the 5th edition two-step petrification where on the first turn you're restrained, on the second turn you're petrified. Again, I'm okay with that. It's a little bland, but it works. Now, moving on to the Medusas. They are depicted in D&D as being basically humanoids, typically women, with serpents for hair. Right as is the classical depiction of Medusa, the Gorgon in Greek mythology. Like basilisks, they also have a petrifying gaze. But unlike the basilisks, they must make eye contact in order to 
petrify their target. So the Medusa has always been one of those creatures where if you can avert your eyes, you can avoid the petrifying gaze. But they were always very charming and very seductive, and they would encourage you to look at them to the point where some of them might even have had a little touch of enchantment magic to be like charm person sort of deal. Where they would magically enchant you to look at them in the eye in order for them to be able to petrify you. That that has always made sense to me that they would. And again, it kind of comes in with that whole snake, seductress, Eve, serpent tie in with everything else. And that's very much a Western culture thing, particularly as you get more to medieval lore, you get a little further away from actual Greek history into more medieval. So yeah, that's how they've always been brought across. Yeah. So like the basilisks, they can also be affected by their own gaze and turn to stone. Again, referring back to the story of Medusa from Greek myth, but very specifically only proper mirrors or mirror polished metallic surfaces can do that. So things like the reflection from a pool of water would not use that ability. So they could have like a scrying bowl or a seeing bowl. So a bowl of very still water that they would be able to see their reflection in. And that reflection would not cause them to petrify themselves. So that's why whenever you would go into a Medusa's lair, there would be no shiny metallic stuff. Correct. They didn't want to run the risk of accidentally petrifying themselves stands to reason i think one of the better modern versions of this is actually from the percy jackson lightning thief book and they do a fairly decent job translating this in the film as well it's a medusa and she's actually running it looks like the little ceramic statue like type shop and so she's got all of these statues and different things and it takes them a little while before they realize that they're all various people that she's petrified so As with everything else so far in second edition, the gaze of the Medusa also extended into the astral and ethereal planes. Even a freshly dead Medusa can petrify with her gaze. The save that you would get against petrification from a dead Medusa's face, you would get a plus one bonus per day that the Medusa had been dead as the head slowly rotted until such a point that the bonus that you would get would make it impossible for you to fail. And then at that point, it is effectively harmless. Which really ties into the thing that the whole seductive beauty or paralyzing beauty, because as she decomposes, it becomes less and less. So it's really what was the source of this ability for Medusa? So in second edition, the snakes that comprise her hair are also able to make bite attacks and they have a save or die poison. Oh, so if she's able to get up close enough to you, they only have a one foot reach. So she has to literally get right up on you. But if she's able to bite you with her hair, it is a save or die poison. Okay. There was one variant to the Medusa in second edition, the greater Medusa, which had a serpentine body below the torso, much like the Merilith demon. Or that would be the, not the abominations, that would be the pureblood Yanti? No, the Yanti purebloods are the ones that are the most humanoid. Oh, okay. Then it's the abominations uh, that are... It would be the anathema, the anathema, I think. There you go, yeah. But yeah, so their poison was more virulent, so you had a penalty on all of your saves against their poisons. They also preferred to use bows, 
and they would coat their arrows with their own venom. Nice. So yes, so you get shot, and then you have to make a save versus poison or die. Fair enough. No, that is definitely a challenging beastie to fight. That would be close to an end-stage BBEG for me, I think. Oh, but there's still one more thing. Oh, but wait, there's more. Their blood was so poisonous that even after it's dead, if you even so much as touch the body, you trigger a save or die versus poison. Now, this reminds me of the 80s film Clash of the Titans. And again, where the snakes were poisonous, the head still, you know, had the petrifying gaze. And one point, one of the satyrs pierced the bag that held the head and it produced a bunch of scorpions. And so I'm pretty sure that's where they got a lot of that from. Probably. Moving on to third edition, the Medusa is largely unchanged. It still has a petrifying gaze. The gaze has been specified to have a 30-foot range, and the poison is no longer save or die. It now instead deals strength damage. Okay. So it is an initial 1d6 strength damage, ongoing 2d6 strength damage. Now, and again, I do enjoy the stat damaging poisons. That is something that has largely fallen out of favor, but is a very interesting mechanic in some of the older editions. So moving on to 4th edition, 4th edition is where it gets interesting because they decided to make Medusas their own full-on race. They gave them a pseudo-Yanti treatment. Nice. They made them serpentine humanoids. They added in male Medusas. Okay. Unfortunately, they decided to go the drow route where it is a matriarchal society where the males are basically slaves to the females. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, I am all for a matriarchal society, but I'm not a huge fan of the the slave male trope or the evil matriarchal society. That's, I don't know. Seems a little ick to me. More than a little. (laughs) But anyway, so the male Medusas don't get snake hair. They're completely bald. Okay. And they don't get a petrifying gaze. Instead, they get a gaze that's called the mind venom gaze, which functions as an interrupt reaction, which is a close blast five. So that 25 by 25 square adjacent to the square they're occupying that deals a whole bunch of poison damage. And if the initial target fails their saving throw, it stuns them. Oh, nice. And it recharges whenever they make a successful melee attack with their sword. Interesting. Now, I'm okay with that for a mechanic. That is actually kind of a cool mechanic that your attacks in being successful recharges your abilities. It kind of is like a morale thing almost. And so I do like that as a mechanic. And it is specified that unlike with the regular Medusa where you have to make eye contact for the gaze to work, This works whether they're averting their gaze or not. The target does not have to be able to make eye contact with the male Medusa for this to work. They just have to be able to see the target. I was going to say, this almost seems like it'd be more like a psionic attack versus... It is. So continuing on, by default, most female Medusae have bows. Instead of having a gaze that they have to activate, it is now a passive aura. So anyone who starts within 10 feet of them is automatically hit. And then they have to make a saving throw at the end of their turn to resist the ongoing effects. I almost like that better because as a DM, it would be really hard to determine if your player is actually making eye contact or not. Yeah. And I could see a lot of table argument developing from that. And their hair 
snakes still have the ability to make bite attacks. They're still poisonous. They now deal an ongoing poison, so they'll deal a little bit of piercing damage plus some poison damage initially, and then you have to make a saving throw to avoid ongoing poison damage every turn. There are a couple of other variants that were introduced in 4th edition. One of them is the Medusa Warrior, who had a venomous gaze that deals poison and psychic damage. And on a failed save, it dazes the target, which means that they can only take one action per turn and attacks against them are made with advantage. Nice. And it also weakens the target. So their speed and their damage rolls are halved. Oh, ouch. Yeah, it's rough. And then the other one that is really interesting is the Medusa Spirit Charmer. So their gaze deals psychic damage and compels the target to approach. Oh, I like that one. So it's not forced movement. It's kind of in the same vein of the Booming Blade cantrip. Okay. So whenever they get hit by it, the target has to end their turn within 10 feet of this Medusa or they take additional psychic damage. Okay, I see that. And that kind of comes in with that whole, you know, enchantment magic as well would make a lot of sense with that to, you know, draw the victim in or draw the target in, as it were. Absolutely. And that also will trigger their reaction ability, which is Stony Glare. So whenever a creature comes within 10 feet of them, they are automatically hit with a Stony Glare. They have to save if they fail their saving throw they're instantly petrified. I cast side eye. <laughs> and this is the only instance of a Medusa that instantly petrifies on the first turn. Okay. But you still get three saving throws to try and avoid making it permanent. Okay. So if you succeed on one of those saving throws afterwards, the petrification ends. It's like quick creed. It hasn't quite set. Yeah. Okay. Kind of like that. But if you fail three consecutive saving throws, You're a statue until such a time as you are able to get a greater restoration or in fourth edition. They also specified that if you could get the blood of the Medusa, which petrified the creature and you could apply that blood to that creature's lips within 24 hours of them being petrified, it would reverse the petrification. It was never specified that that Blood had to be taken from a slain Medusa. Oh, fair point. So you could, in theory, go a diplomatic route and say, hey, we'll do this favor for you for a vial of your blood so that we can unpetrify this dude. Okay. Or I could see someone taking a turn if they're using like a slashing weapon, like an axe or a sword in using that to try to. Yeah. Or, you know, attempting to collect a sample. Basically. I I would say that the Medusa would have to be down below at least half hit points for that to fly. But as a DM, if a player came up with that idea, I would definitely give it credence because that's some good thinking by your players. Yeah. And, you know, That would also work well with a fourth edition mindset because once you hit 50% health, you had the bloodied condition in fourth edition. So yeah, those would work together. Yeah. Moving along finally to fifth edition, they are largely the same as they've always been. There are no variants. It is just the one Medusa. They have the petrifying gaze that you can avert your eyes in order to avoid They have a multi-attack, so they can either make one attack with their snake and two attacks with a short sword, 
or two attacks with a longbow. Okay. That's about it. The one interesting thing about the fifth edition Medusa is that they establish a little bit more lore talking about where the Medusas come from because they're getting away from that fourth edition Medusa as a evil race sort of aspect. Gotcha. Rightfully so, I think. I think that was a Yeah, that was a bit of a That was a up. failed experiment. Yeah, I mean, um, good concept but poorly executed. Terribly executed. But the concept is that Medusas come from the result of bargains made with higher powers. Specifically bargains made to gain eternal beauty or eternal youth or eternal adoration. And so they get what they want in the short term. But when it comes time to pay the bill, they are transformed into these Medusas so that, yes, they are eternally youthful. They are immortal. They are eternally beautiful. But anything that they cast their eyes upon is turned to stone. And so they no longer are able to receive the adoration and they are forced to sequester themselves from society. They're forced to remove themselves from the thing that they wanted. I like that. And that comes a little closer to the original Greek myths as well. Yeah, that's a good fit. So I can definitely see this being end game sort of content for some Pact of the Fiend warlocks. Ooh, yeah. Depending on why they entered their pact. Yeah, that makes all sense. All right. I think that pretty well does it. Yeah, no, that wraps us up. Like I said, these creatures can be extremely interesting. They can be a great challenge for your party. You can sit there and pretty much lock out a good 20% of your party's damage or ability by binding down a character. So these are some fairly challenging monsters and something different that we don't get to see all that often anymore. So again, if you want some variety for your table monsters, this is definitely some fun things to throw. Yeah, and from a 5th edition standpoint, the challenge ratings are fairly low. I think the Gorgon is a 5 or a 6, the Medusa is a CR 6. Yeah. And they are the highest CRs of these monsters. The Basilisk is a CR 3, the Cockatrice is a CR 1 half, I believe. So this is something that you can very easily implement in an earlier stage of a campaign and then maybe make phase two of your campaign. Oh no, this one player character got petrified and we can't fix it. Yeah. And so now we are on a quest to unpetrify our friend. Yeah, that works. But yeah, I think that'll pretty well do it for today. I think our next episode, we are going to try and get into starting our North American cryptids. Huzzah. We've started putting together show notes and outlines and such. I believe our first episode is going to focus primarily on Bigfoot and its variants. Yep. Because there are lots of variants of them, yes. throughout North America. We looked at several of those cryptid by state maps and a full third of the cryptids were some variation yeah. on Bigfoot. Everyone has a different Bigfoot. If you go into a different county, it's a different Bigfoot. <laughs> so that's where we're going to start on the next episode. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, or if you have a North American cryptid that you really want us to make sure that we cover, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at UndercommonTaste. We're on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where our write-ups go when I get around to actually finally finishing a bunch of them. We are on itch, undercommontaste.itch.io. That's where you can find our 
Liminal Horror Adventure Beneath the Lake and my solo RPG Forever Home. If you want to help support the show financially, you can either become a patron or purchase one of those items, and we would really very much appreciate it. And finally, we are on Discord. You can find the link to the Discord in our show notes if you wanted to come over and talk with us directly. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. We're glad that you joined us. If you want to hear our other episodes, you can find our podcast wherever you find your regular podcast. As always, please give us a subscription and a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. So stay safe, everyone, and we will see you in two weeks when we start talking about Bigfoot. Happy gaming. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marykroll.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash David Sutherland or on instagram.com slash willx underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe, and we'll see you then.